right. Good morning, everybody. You know, they, uh, they say that a, a good sermon starts with a really good story. You know, stories have a way of just grabbing your attention, drawing folks in, and, and providing a, a means of, of memory and, and uh, recognition of, of the, the moral of the story. So a good sermon starts with a good story. Now, I don't know if this is a good sermon or not, but what I do know is that it's a very, very good story. Don't, don't you just love a good trilogy, right? One of my favorites was The Lord of the Rings. You had The Fellowship of the Ring, The Two Towers, The Return of the King. You know, and of course, in, in literature, Tolkien preceded those with The Hobbit, right? And so here in Matthew chapters 1 and chapters 2, we kind of have something a little bit similar. You have a trilogy in chapter 2, and of course, Matthew precedes that in chapter 1 with The Messiah. And so we're going to be in chapter 2 today. And I think the narrative that, that you'll see today is, uh, is vastly different than, than, say, what Tolkien wrote. Uh, it, it's vitally defining, num- number one, uh, the narrative is nonfiction. This is scripture. This is truth. And so, you know, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew provides three stories here in chapter 2. And we're going to just look at the first story today uh, in verses 1 uh, through 12 uh, in a sermon entitled, The Seeking of the King. So, so maybe you've gotten the playbill that was outside uh, for the sermon. I'm not going to sing it. I was teasing Eric. I was going to sing the sermon to a screenplay, but that's not the case. Um, but what we have here uh, in, in this text, um, just follow along in your Bibles. It, it really doesn't matter what translation you have in front of you. Matter of fact, if you have a different translation than the, from the ESV, it's probably a good thing. The ESV is going to be on the screen There's the playbill, and actually what makes this sermon so simple today is I'm actually going to be reading notes from uh, the screenplay, The Seeking of the King. So I don't have any memorization to do here or anything like that. It's just going to be me kind of sharing some some notes from the screenplay. And of course, I made that up, just just so you know. But really, all this will hopefully provide a a high-def, surround-sound view of today's story, The Seeking of the King. And the big idea for the day, I want you to keep this in mind as we go through it, is this. Seek to be wise. Seek to be wise. How many of you like great opening lines to stories, right? Well, in The Fellowship of the Ring, this is how Tolkien started uh, that, that story. He said, when Mr. Bilbo Baggins of Bag End announced that he would be shortly celebrating his 111st birthday with a party of special magnificence, there was much talk and excitement in Hobbiton, Right? you automatically get the idea, this is going to be a story that's pretty quirky, pretty different, right? Or we were just chatting back there in, in, in the, the, I don't know what you call that room back there, about Star Wars and that, that trilogy. If you remember the old Star Wars more, do you remember, remember the crawl that started that movie? Yeah. It was a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. You know, it was a time of civil war. It, it set up a galactic battle um, for the Star Wars trilogy. Well, those were, were memorable opening lines uh, to trilogies. And today, I, I think it's just, it's, it's a, again, a very classic line with, with, uh, with which Matthew starts his story. So what I'm going to do is I'm actually just going to take the, the first three words in the Greek and share them with you because it's just so powerful. He says this, now of Jesus. Those are the first three words, now of Jesus. And, and if that's not awesome enough, he then, he then adds some some Greek literary technique, too, that, that, that helps him to set off the narrative in chapter 1 from what he has in chapter 2 to point forward to the story that he unfolds in chapter 2. And so you have this simultaneous thing going on, and, it, 
and kind of the technical term here is a genitive absolute that he uses. But know that what he's doing is he's marking off the story. He sets up a prelude to the story with this technical term, a genitive absolute. And so he says this. He says, look, I don't think it's a big deal that that first verse is up there, verse 1. Because uh, remember, this, this technique is just setting up the, the prelude to the story. So what he's doing concurrently is he's introducing a key member, a cast member of the story, and he's providing three pieces of information regarding the circumstance of that character. Now, Jesus, the character, after he was born, his stage of life, in Bethlehem of Judea, his location, and the days of Herod the king. That's the prelude. That's the opening line to this first um, trilogy. But I don't want to go too fast past that. If you've got your... Your playbill, just open up to the cast and just look at this first cast member, Jesus. See, what Matthew did in chapter 1, he used that whole chapter to do one thing. He established Jesus as the Messiah, the seed promised to Abraham. We just went through a series in this church on the God of Abraham, Isaac, uh, and Jacob. And so what he's done here, he said, this is Jesus, the one promised to Abraham, the eternal king promised to David, the one conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the virgin, Mary, as prophesied by Isaiah, right? He is fully God. He's perfect man. He is the one whose name means God saves. This is Messiah, the anointed one of God, the true king, the king of the Jews. So back to verse 2, 1. It says this, now after Jesus was born, now, now granted what, what Matthew does with regard to these, these three circumstances, he's only going to give us a general reference to the time in the life of Jesus. Um, we, we know if we went to Luke chapter 2, um, according to the Mosaic law, after 40 days, Mary would go to the temple for purification and she'd make a sacrifice. Luke records that she sacrificed two doves or two pigeons as opposed to a lamb. A lamb would have been someone of wealth. They would have sacrificed that. So obviously, as you've read through this story, you know it quite well. The Magi bring great and valuable treasures to Mary. So this has happened, obviously, after that period of time. I don't know if it's several months to a year. But also, Matthew uses a term later on in this story. He calls uh, the young child a young child. He doesn't call it a, a baby infant. So that's, that's point number one. So what Matthew does is he gives a general view of this is after Jesus was born, but he gets a little more specific with the location because he wants you to understand this is the Messiah. This is the anointed one of God. So where is Bethlehem? It says here he was born in Bethlehem of Judea. It's about four, five, six miles maybe south of Jerusalem. Uh, if you remember uh, just two weeks ago when Eric preached in Genesis chapter 35, um, there, there's the story of Rachel giving birth to the 12th son, Benjamin, Rachel dies during childbirth, and um, she is actually buried uh, in the town of Bethlehem. It wasn't called Bethlehem back then, but later it was. Matter of fact, if you're familiar with your Bibles and the, the book of Ruth, Boaz was from Bethlehem. Uh, that's the same town. David, the king, was born out of Bethlehem. And then later, um, this is probably, I'll call it around 700 B.C., Micah writes this prophecy. He says this in chapter 5 of Micah. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. This, this is Messiah. And that's what, what again, what Matthew is trying to stress here with, with the, the, the circumstance of the location. And then thirdly, he gives 
um, the political environment. He wants his readers to know, uh, you know, the environment in which Jesus was born. And we're going to unpack the second character, Herod, uh, in just a little bit. We'll go to the playbill for that. For just right now, let's just notice that the, the, the prelude is set and that the scene is shifting from Bethlehem to uh, Jerusalem. And so enter the third set of characters in verse 2, the wise men. So Matthew continues, behold, behold. Now, now watch this. Watch what Matthew does here because it's a repeated pattern that he uses to mark each narrative uh, of the trilogy. He begins with the prelude. You know, we talked about the genitive absolute. He follows it with this interjection, behold. Here in verse 1, behold, wise men from the east. So there's something important about these wise men that he wants to draw your attention to. Behold, look, listen up, pay attention, wise men from the east. So, again, I said it's a pattern, so I'm going to just take a little sidebar here. Some of the Bibles don't really carry that word through. Some of your translations don't. So if you've got, in verse 1, it should say, Behold, wise men from the east. The second trilogy begins in verse 13. And it should say, Behold, an angel of the Lord. Verse 19, Behold, an angel of the Lord. And those kind of just set off the, the, the three stories here. But what, what Matthew is wanting you to do as you get to this, Behold, is he wants you to slow down, take a deep breath, pay attention to the narrative. He says in verse 1, continuing, Behold, wise men from the east. So we probably need to take our playbill, look at the cast. Let's look at this third set of characters, the wise men. And um, I think what's, what's important here is let's just read a couple of elements here. First, it says they're from the east. Now, we know that it was a long time ago in a town far, far away. This is not last week in East Texas. This isn't Matt, Mike, and Eric of Tyler, Texas. These aren't wise guys. These are wise men from the east. Yeah. So Matthew does not say where from the east they, they are, but he does indicate later in the story that they're from a different land, from a different country. And, and I think that's, that's important. And, and um, what I want to do here is, remember, contextually, Matthew is setting up, this is Messiah. This is the anointed one. To the Gentiles, it would have been uh, the king of the, the Jews. And so um, there is... And I'm not going to take a bullet for this, but I do think it's a very interesting thought. I think it's one worth considering um, about who these wise men were. And so I'm going to give a little background to this. And again, I'm not going to take a bullet for it, um, but I do think it's, it's, it's very interesting. If you think about it, Babylon is not in the Roman Empire, right? You would think that if Matthew was going to talk about a, a, a region or a province within the Roman Empire, he would have given it by name. But he says, no, they're, they're from the east which tells me that they're, they're probably outside of the Roman Empire. Babylon is a, a, almost due east of Jerusalem. It's about a four-month journey from Babylon into Jerusalem, so that would have fit uh, the timeline that, that Matthew has provided uh, earlier in verse 1. And if you remember your history, in about 586 B.C., uh, Judah fell to Babylon. Uh, the, the Jews were... Um, exiled, uh, taken up to Babylon, and there was a young, um, young nobleman, Daniel, at the time, who was part of that. And Daniel uh, rose to great prominence within the Babylonian kingdom and the kingdoms that, that came after that. Matter of fact, if you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2, and this is of the time of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And I'm just going to do this briefly because I've got to watch the time here. Um, 
He says this in verse 48, then the king, that's King Nebuchadnezzar, gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler, get this, he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Now, I realize that Daniel was written over 500 years before uh, these wise men showed up in Jerusalem, but just, just hold that thought for, for just one minute. Let me just kind of share with you what a, um, your translation may say magi, which is plural of magus, uh, what a magus, or the Greek is, is magos, uh, what that is. The lexicon defines it as this. It's, it's a uh, person noted for unusual capacity of understanding, regarded as combining both the aspects of the secular, namely astrology, with aspects of the religious. They were considered priests in many contexts. And of course, context ultimately de determines what we, we uh what the word means. It says here that, you know, um, in some cases, it's evil, right? If you went to Acts chapter uh, 13, it talks of an evil magus, right? Well, here in chapter 2 of Matthew, these are good magi. These are good wise men. They were men who studied the stars, and the text implies that they had to have some understanding of Old Testament prophecy because they were seeking the king of the Jews, which, which brings me back to Daniel just real quick. And we don't have time to unpack Daniel chapter 9, I know it, but uh, in your studies, I, I would, I'd say uh, go back and read uh, uh, chapter 9. If you went to uh, chapter 9 starting in verse 2, it, it talks about in the first year of his reign, it's a king, uh, Darius. So now time has progressed. It's about 539, 540 B.C. And so Daniel was studying the prophecies of, of Jeremiah and um, with that, he kind of had a, a vision as to what Jeremiah was talking about. And so in verse 3, Daniel does the sweetest thing. He's got such a wonderful prayer life. I'm, I'm completely jealous in a good way of that. But he, turned my, he says, I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God, made confession, saying, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So he goes into this long and lengthy prayer for the nation of Israel. And then over in verse 21, while he was speaking in prayer, the angel Gabriel appears. And it's, I, you know, we heard your prayers. We heard your pleas. And he has granted wisdom and understanding. And if you were to read and study verses 24 through the, the end of the chapter, uh, there is this awesome prophecy that unfolds in the life of the nation of Israel, starting with the rebuilding of Jerusalem, see Nehemiah, up until and he, he projects to the day the coming of the Messiah, 490 years. And so um, th the point of all of this is that it would not be unusual for men of Babylon who have studied from those underneath Daniel through the decades to have been very familiar with a prophecy of Daniel, and that they would have been looking for signs in the sky for the, the, the one who is born king of the Jews. But regardless of that, and like I said, it's just a great way to think about it, God had revealed to these magi, these wise men, more than just a sign among the stars. He revealed the significance of that sign. So the wise men traveled from the east, and they've arrived in Jerusalem. So the stage is set. You've got the prelude. You've got the background of these characters from the east coming into Jerusalem, and the director says, action. Let's go to verse 2. They were saying, in other words, they were going around the city, they were asking the people involved in dialogue, trying to figure out where is the Messiah. 
Now, men, I want you to pay attention to this. This is very important. This is in Scripture, so I want you to pay attention, all right? They ask this question. Where is the one having been born king of the Jews? Now, two things ought to jump out at you. First, this applies to everybody. Note very carefully the text. They did not ask, where is the one to be born, or where is the one born to be king of the Jews? They ask, where is the one having been born king of the Jews? It's already taken place. These are studied men, men who have traveled a great distance at great risk. I mean, think about it. They are leaving their country, entering into the great Roman Empire, the powerful Roman Empire, to inquire about another king that's not Herod or, or, or is not Caesar. And they're carrying with them valuable treasure. So they, they did this traveling at, at great risk. Now, now, man, this is what I want you to pay attention to. There's no shame in asking for directions. There's not. It's a sign of wisdom, okay? These men stopped, rolled down the windows on their camel, and they asked for directions. And if you look at the verb tense, they didn't just ask once and done. It was a process. They asked, and they asked, and they asked, where's the one having been born king of the Jews? Now, women, I know it, it, drives, you, it drives my wife crazy um, that I don't stop and ask for directions. Um, but I, I, just, I just need to share this with you. Uh, you know, psychological studies are out there, and it's just natural. It's a natural thing for men not to stop and ask directions. It's hormonal. I know you, it, it, it's true. It's hormonal. You know, we, we, we respond on, on instinct, on gut, you know, right? We just, we, we just have this natural response. I'm responding by my gut in more ways than one. But anyway, so that's what this is about. Here's, a, here's an example. This is out of uh, psychological science. And, and this was a study. And so let me, let me just demonstrate how guys respond out of their gut. It says this. And so guys, listen, don't answer out loud. Um, you don't want the person next to you to see that you're not wise like me. Okay, listen to this. A baseball bat and a baseball together cost 11 bucks. A baseball bat and a baseball together cost 11 bucks. The baseball bat costs $10 more than the baseball. How much does the baseball bat cost? Now, men like me are prone to make a snap judgment. My response, 10 bucks, right? 10 plus 1 is 11, but 10 plus 1, 10 is not 10 greater than 1, right? So wise men ask for directions. You can think about that. You can tell me what the answer is later, but it's not 10 and 1. So regardless, what, what we see here is that the wise men have stopped. They're asking for directions. We see God's providence at work, and they not only inquire about where uh, regarding the who, but they give us the reason that they're looking for the king of the Jews. Continuing in verse 2, it says this, For we saw his star in the rising. For It reads like a because. They were seeking the king of the Jews because they saw his star. Not a star, but his star in the rising. Now, some of your translations may have the noun, they saw his star in the east, right? You, you know, you don't need to raise your hands, but you may have that. Uh, and look, that, the word can mean that. We saw it earlier in, in the story. These are wise men from the east, uh, well, the, the, the word is rooted in, in the meaning of the rising of the sun, which is oriented in the east. But you've got two meanings there. You've got the orientation of the east, and you also have this upward movement. And so this is, I think, contextually, the, the rising of the star. Because when you think about it, they're wise men, right? They're smart dudes, right? So why would they be in the east and go west to follow a star that's in the east? So I think that the translation of in the rising uh, is probably more appropriate there. Um, and so they, they, uh, the reason was twofold. They saw his star in the rising. They came to worship him. So that we start to see the drama build 
right away in verse 2. So we continue on. We see a change in the act as the scene shifts from Jerusalem proper to King Herod's quarters. And so we read in verse 3, when King Herod heard, now, let's go to the playbill and get some color on King Herod because he's the villain of the story. Herod um, was known as Herod the Great. He reigned from, I call it approximately 40 B.C., some say 37 B.C. to maybe 4 or 5 A.D. And to uh, quote that great judge of character, Eric Barton, he was one bad motor scooter. He, he, was, he was a bad, bad dude. And he, he, uh, he was a shrewd politician. He came from a family of politicians. And if you don't know what politics means, it comes from a Latin word, poly meaning many, and ticks meaning bloodsuckers. He came from that. <laughs> Are there any politicians in here? Today? Um, sorry. Um, uh, but anyway, he, he, he was an Edomite. You know, we, again, we went through Genesis. We understand what an Edomite is. He was from southern Judea, but he was exceedingly loyal uh, to Rome. He had this ability to consolidate power. He did that early in his reign. Uh, he then built out a lot of infrastructure, uh, uh, including the temple in Jerusalem. And he was able to maintain at least good enough relations with the Jews to be able to collect the taxes uh, for Rome. But, but Herod had a problem. And you'll see that in the, in the playbill. He had 10 wives and 15 kids. That's a pretty big problem. But also, as time went on, he got increasingly more paranoid uh, in his reign. And it kind of snowballed. As he got more and more paranoid, that the kingdom got more and more unstable. And, and so he became known as a paranoid tyrant. You'll hear me say TPH, you know, or PTH. He was a paranoid tyrant Herod. And that's just to kind of give you an example of that. Uh, he had his favorite wife. He had her parents killed. He went and killed his favorite wife. And because he felt threatened by the two sons of his favorite wife, he had them killed. So by the time of Jesus' birth, he was full-on uh, PTH, paranoid, tyrant, one, one very bad motor scooter. So let's continue in verse 3. Herod was alarmed. The wise men were seeking the one who had been born king of the Jews, and this could only mean one thing to Herod. Somebody was after his throne, and he wasn't going to put up with it. And what's interesting here in, in, the, in the text, in verse 3, it says, and it wasn't just Herod who was disturbed, as was all Jerusalem with him. And it doesn't say why, why Jerusalem was, was troubled. And, and I've thought about this, and, and I don't know. Maybe there's something I'm missing in the text. Could it be that they were concerned that, that Herod was going to do something, uh, be very irrational uh, in, in his paranoia, and... and uh, take it out on, on the Jewish people? Or, or was it just Matthew setting up the story? Because we'll see throughout Matthew, the people of Israel, uh, they reject Jesus, the Messiah. I don't know. But we see in verse 4, as this scene continues, and calling together all the high priests and scribes of the people. See, he was so alarmed, so paranoid, he called together an assembly of the Jewish leaders, those who would know something about Messiah. So he calls them together, and the tension now starting to build because he says, the, 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 the text says, he inquired from them. Again, it's kind of hard to see in the English, but in the Greek, this, this is an imperfect tense verb, so it means that it was a continual action in the past. I can almost see him gathering a group of, of scribes here, a, a group of high priests there, and asking them in separate groups so he could ferret out the truth, where the Messiah was to be born. Now, now, notice that's a little bit different than what the, the wise men were asking. 
He was asking where the Messiah was to be born. He did not want to give any credence, any credibility to the wise men whatsoever. So he's asking the question not as if it has happened, but when it does happen, where will it occur? He's a man of politics. So we kind of see that the tension in the story building. You know, Herod is very, very shrewd. And so he goes through this interrogation process, as we see in verse 4, and we kind of shift now to verse 5, and there's a little bitty word uh, in the Greek that I think separates a little bit of time from, from the inquiries of, of, of verse 4 to the answer he gets here in verse 5. That little, I found it in the New King James Version. Uh, there's a little word, so, just write in so at the beginning of, of verse 5. If it's not in your text, I think it just adds to the time element here. So they said to him, so apparently he's gathered them back together, uh, and they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, pretty clear, pretty direct response in Bethlehem of Judea, but you're dealing with a paranoid tyrant, so you better give him a little bit of justification. And so they do in the rest of verse 5. It says this, For thus it has been written through the prophet. And they give this answer. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, I realize that's a little bit different than what I read from Micah chapter, two, chapter 5, verse 2. Um, but that's okay. What we have here is the prophet Micah with a little bit of 2 Samuel 5-2 thrown in because it's very Davidic. Remember, Matthew's talking about the eternal king promised to David. And so it, it's not a misquote on the part of, of Matthew. It'd be like Eric up here preaching out, out of the, the gospel of John and, he, and uh, he gets the, the line that says, uh, you know, you know the, behold the Lamb of God. Behold, there's that word. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And then he just adds a comment like the one who emptied himself from Philippians 2. It just adds a little more color, a little bit of clarity uh, to, to their answer and to their response. And so we go now to verse 7. Things have changed a little bit. We got a, a new act. It's like the Pharisees and the not the Pharisees, the scribes and the high priests were, were sent away. And we get to verse 7. I'm going to read this a little bit slowly. New Acts. Then Herod secretly, circled that word, secretly summoned the wise men to determine precisely, circle that word, from the time of the appearing star. See, Herod is evil. He's a bad motor scooter. He's paranoid. He's, he's a shrewd politician. He didn't want the Jewish leaders to know what he was doing what he was going to do. He didn't want the Jewish leaders to think that Herod himself thought the Messiah had been born. He didn't want the Jewish leaders to think that he gave any credence to the wise men whatsoever. So he called the wise men together secretly because he now knew what, he knew where, he didn't care why, but he wanted to know when so he could determine who, so he could do something about it. He is one bad dude, and he wanted the threat to his throne ended. So he implements a plan. Verse 8, and sending them into Bethlehem, he said, go and search diligently concerning this child. And as soon as you discover, report back to me so I may also come and worship him. I mean, can't you just see the evil of, of the dark Lord Sauron at work? And, and frankly, this reads a little bit like the Grinch who stole Christmas. Remember the Grinch was, was stealing all the, the Who's houses and um, he wakes up little Cindy Lou Who, who was no more than two and she asked what he was doing, and he said, oh, I'm taking it home to my shop, my dear. I'll fix it up there, and I'll bring it back here. You, know, you just want to wipe that grinish grin off of the Herod's face. 
So verse 8 closes. The wise men are departing. And we read in verse 9. After hearing the king, they departed. There's the word. And behold, look, listen up, the star. Not just a star, but the star. The star which they saw in the rising, which was leading them. It's now leading them again. But, but I want you to you know, pay attention because Matthew uses that word behold. So he goes, he talks about the rising star becoming the resting star over our Savior, who is the star, who becomes the ascending star at the end of his earthly ministry to sit at the right hand of God until he comes again. Behold the star until it came to rest over the child. Verse 10, we're now in Bethlehem. The scene has changed. Now seeing the resting star, the magi, the, the wise men, rejoiced with great joy. Hot dog. This is cool beans with a gallon of awesome thyme, awesome sauce. This is good stuff. And having come into the house, again, it's no longer a baby wrapped in claws lying in a manger. This is in a house. They're in a house somewhere in Bethlehem. And, and this is what the important part is in verse 11. They saw the child with Mary. The verb there to focus on is, that's the verbal idea, they see Jesus. It's not the fact that they entered into the house or later on the, the two participles uh, that, that follow that, the falling down and the opening of the treasures. They see Jesus. They've discovered what they desired. They see what they sought. They see the king of the Jews. Continuing in verse 11. And falling down, they worshiped him. Not, not kneeling in front of royalty. They fell down with purpose and prostate to worship the king. And second, opening their treasure boxes, they offered him gifts, and they presented them to Jesus. Not to Mary, but to Jesus. And these are obviously gifts of great value, uh, something that might come in handy if you're packing a, bag out, a bug out bag, if you've got to leave the country in a hurry, and you're going to have to read the second part of the trilogy for that. But I want you to see the character of these characters. They sought, they worshipped, they gave. They were wise men. And you would think right there at the end of chapter 11, this would provide a great end of the story. But we still have a villain to contend with, right? So Matthew doesn't disappoint, and he sets up the second trilogy brilliantly, and he says this in verse 12. It says, And being divinely warned, according to a dream, not to return to Herod, they returned into their country through another route. Now, your text may not have that word divinely in there, but if you look at the Greek lexicons, um, Divinely is intended there. So God had warned them in a divine vision to leave. And so that's what the wise men do. They depart in obedience to God and not with Herod. So there is the story. That's the trilogy of the wise men. Um, so the big question is, what do we do with this information? What do we, what do we take away from this, this story? And, and I got four things here that... Um, we can draw on uh, to draw applications for our lives. And, and the four things go like this. First, seek him. Seek him. You know, there's a, an adage uh, that you see a lot this time of year. You see it on Christmas cards. You see it on commercials. You see it, you know, almost everywhere you look. It says, wise men still seek him. Right? And um, I like that, but it's like a circle only half drawn because it doesn't really address the guys like me that don't stop and ask for directions. Right? Because I'm not yet wise. So I think to make that a full circle, wise men still seek him, seek to be wise. And so 
the question might come up, well, what is wisdom? And, and the way I like to think of it practically is, is this, is that wisdom is the right application of knowledge. We all have knowledge. The wise men had some level of knowledge of Jesus. The scriptures don't tell us how much, but it would appear that they had quite a bit of knowledge. But, but um, the difference between knowledge and wisdom is this. Knowledge tells you that the brakes stop a car, but wisdom tells you when to apply the brakes. So seek to be wise. Seek that, the wisdom that comes from above. Um, I'm just going to take a quick sidebar here. Go to, if you've got your Bibles, if you're quick at flipping them open, go to Proverbs chapter 3. This is pretty cool. Because we, we, we think a lot about the, 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 the gifts to the Magi, and I'll come back to that in a minute. But uh, I'm so, yeah, chapter 3, verse 13 it says, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom. And the one who gets understanding, for the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. Sorry, Rudolph fans. Yukon Cornelius is wrong, right? It's wisdom and understanding is what you should be mining and prospecting for. Number one is seek him. Number two is worship him. You know, Jesus asked Peter um, this very important theological question. Who do you say that I am? Peter rightly answered, you're the Messiah. You're the son of God. You're the very essence of God. You are God, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal one. And at the first advent, Jesus put on flesh, took, took a second yet distinct nature to his divinity, fully God, fully man, forever in the one person of Christ. He became flesh, dwelt among us. Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus, who names him Yahweh, saves. He's a lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He's the image of the invisible God. It is by him all things were created, and by him all things hold together. He saves, he delivers, he gives rest. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords, and is worthy of our worship. So yes, wise men still seek him. Wise men still worship him. Seek to be wise. Third, give yourself to him. You know, Jesus instructed his 11 disciples in the upper room on the night he was betrayed. He told them that they would be like the ripples of, of a pebble dropped in a still pond, that their ministry would be even greater than his in terms of extending outward uh, to the world. And, and to get that job done, he promised them two things. First, he promised them a helper, the Holy Spirit, who would not just be with them but would be in them permanently. And secondly, he taught them the meaning of giving yourself away. First, in service through the, the demonstration of the least shall be first and the washing of the feet, and then by teaching them later, uh, demonstrating that love for God is loving one another, and that measure of loving one another is as I, Jesus, has lo have loved you. And so he, he, he defines that further. He says, greater love is this than no one, uh, than this, that, that someone laid down his life for his friends, and he did. So the giving of the wise men goes, goes beyond the presentation of the treasures. You know, they sacrificed their time. They, they took on great risk in traveling. Uh, they entered a foreign country without any assurance of sa safe passage or safe return. They chose to worship and serve the king of the Jews and not Herod or even Caesar. They didn't sit and soak in their knowledge. They weren't stigmatized as a frozen chosen. They were wise and acted rightly on their knowledge for the sake and the glory of the king. Wise men still seek him. Wise men still worship him. Wise men still give themselves to him. Seek to be wise. And four, obey him. Like I said earlier, the Greek word for um, the warning in verse 12 carries the meaning of a, of a divine warning. And so the wise men acted in obedience to God. It sort of reminds me of the story in, in Joshua of uh, the, the spies that go into to Jericho to spy out the, the, uh, Jericho. And uh, Rahab hides them and protects them and sends them out the other way so that they're not detected 
uh, by the enemy. So the wise men leave by another route because wise men still seek him. They still worship him. They still give themselves to him. And they still obey him. Seek to be wise. One final thought, and we'll be, we'll be through. Um, we far too often, uh, often focus on the three gifts from the magi to the child, but we don't consciously realize that in reality, the gold, the frankincense, the myrrh, they were already his, right? Um, yes, they presented the gifts to him, and, and I like that that translation presented, um, but they presented what was already his. We bring nothing to him, right? He brings everything to us, and we merely receive with grateful hearts and then respond in obedience for the purpose of his glory through the use of those gifts. So while we far too often focus on those three gifts from the wise men, we we lose sight of the three gifts God gave the wise men. He gave them wisdom to apply what they knew. He he gave them guidance through a a star uh, and, and a directing dream. And he gave them revelation of the king himself. And those things are available to you. They're available to those who believe. Godly wisdom, godly guidance, godly revelation so that we can properly seek, worship, give, and obey him. So the message today, seek to be wise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we are just thankful for the the season of the first advent. Um, What a story in Matthew, Lord, as we just reflect on it and and think about uh, those times that these men, uh, it's almost like what you uh, reveal through Paul in Ephesians 2.10. They acted on what you had prepared for them to do. And so, Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your revelation of Christ. We thank you for Jesus Christ who, who put on flesh came, was born. He lived the perfect life, the perfect life. And then he died to take on the burden of our sin that was due us. Lord, we just thank you for Jesus. As we sang this morning, we just praise him, praise him. We praise his name. We praise what he did. And Lord, we just uh, want to take this time and pause, just pause on that, that time in Bethlehem as Men from the east sought him, they worshiped him, they gave to him, they obeyed him. And Lord, may we just be that wise, that we be similarly wise in terms of our seeking, worship, giving, and obeying. Lord, we just again thank you for your word, thank you for this time together, and uh, and all these things we ask in that very, very precious name of Jesus. Amen.